I'm here at the Special Collections Research Centre at Syracuse University Library. I've just gone through an exhibition entitled Strange Victories, Grove Press 1951 to 1985 with one publications that artists worked on or collaborations between artists and publishers, artists and writers, artists and different political movements in the United States and abroad. So I work on 20th century material here. We have collections that touch on all of these areas, social justice, activism, avant-garde publishing. So it was a real treat to work on the Grove Press. Because in, in one house you have all of these different aspects of, uh, of cultural life as well as publishing life. Right. Grove may be known for uh, Samuel Beckett or Henry Miller or William Burroughs, but they also published Fanon, they published Robert Frank, they published Jean Genet, and their covers are beautiful. Yes. The design, I mean, you look at the Roy Coleman cover, the palette, the brushwork, you know, that you see on the cover and you go, that's a Grove book. Let's structure our conversation the way that you structured the exhibition. Sure. My co-curator and partner in crime on this exhibition, Susan Klein, is the project archivist for the Grove Press Collection. And the title was her idea. The title of the exhibition is Strange Victories. And uh, that comes from, we take our cue here, from Barney Rossett, who was the publisher of Grove Press. Uh, he, he bought it, uh, the company. He bought the, the company firm. in 1951. He continued to run it as a, a publishing house until 1985. Okay. Before he became the publisher of Grove Press, he served in World War II, and he was interested in filmmaking. He actually created a film when he came back called Strange Victory, and it had to do with race relations in the United States, the problems that the African-American servicemen were encountering after the victory of World War II coming home. And we thought that this was a perfect title for our exhibition because we wanted to look at all the victories that Grove made on the literary front, on the political front. Victories against censorship as much as anything. Absolutely. Yeah. And yet, being on a university campus, you could ask any student walking around the quad, if you heard of Grove Press, you probably wouldn't hear yes. They, they might have said, well, I know about the erotica. Or I've heard of William Burroughs, or Henry Miller, or Marquis de Sade, or Franz Fanon, but most likely they haven't heard of Grove Press. And okay. so it was a victory. So much of what they did was incredible. Yeah. And okay. yet the company was financially in disarray by the late 70s. They had a lot of issues, not only the censorship battles, but disagreements with translators and with the unions and with feminists and apparently the CIA. So they encountered a lot of a lot of issues over the history of the press. As yeah, well. which I guess is not that surprising given how... <laughs> radical they were. Radical and he was a rebel, wasn't he? I never met the man, so mm -hmm. I can't say firsthand, but I admire very much what he and his colleagues, employees did at yeah. Grove Press. So what they do? 
<laughs> they changed everything. Okay. They, um, because they took risks and they seemed to publish authors that they believed in. That's nothing new. It's not? I think that's what, that's what a lot of publishers did. They published writers they believed in. Right. Even if it meant not having any, perhaps not having any financial gain, only having loss. Yeah, that's where we, uh, that's where we separate from the crowd. I mean, I think they knew, you know, they published Andy Warhol's novel in 1968. And yes, Andy Warhol did write a novel. <laughs> it's surprising. Did they publish Bob Dylan's novel? I don't know. I okay. don't know if they did. And I think they certainly published certain things, like mm. the erotica, because it would be a moneymaker. Yeah, so in, in other words, to try and uh, offset some of the costs of doing this more serious work. But at the same time, you know, the people who worked at Grove Press would tell you that Barney published what he was interested in, and he was interested in sex. Yeah. So it wasn't just to make the money to be able to pay to publish Beckett. Right. He wanted to publish that. You know, I'm, I am inclined to believe that Barney Rossett published what Barney Rossett wanted to publish, yeah. whether it meant he would have to fight battles with the government or whether he'd make money or lose money. He published what he wanted to publish, and I think his editors also seemed to, to do that as well. Okay, so Beckett, an interesting selection of European absurdist avant-garde writers. Grove is really credited for bringing the avant-garde literary scene to the United States. Ubu Yari, Bertolt Brecht, Ionesco, um, Artaud, you know, a lot of these authors that Alain Robrier, I mean, you've got the Nouveau Roman and you have the um, pataphysicists. You've got the whole, the whole range of what was at the forefront of European literature and drama, fiction, nonfiction writing at that period. And then they have Don Allen out, in, one of their editors out in San Francisco publishing the beat scene and what's going on in America. So they really had their, their tentacles spread widely. Mm -hmm. And their antennae up for what was new and important, I guess. Yes, yeah, it seems that way. Okay, so how do they do with those? Well, some books um, seem to sell very well and continue to sell well today. I mean, they've entered the literary canon, so Waiting for Godot continues to sell. Uh, the Wretched of the Earth continues to sell. The Autobiography of Malcolm X. Uh, Kenzaburo Oe, one of their authors, has won a Nobel Prize. And at the same time, they publish things like drama in paperback form that was not destined to do well, and some of these authors have sort of fallen to obscurity. But a surprising number of Grove Press authors are in the canon and perhaps weren't there uh, when Grove and Russet got going. Right, because part of that, I think, has to do with the laws that were in place in the United States at this period. I mean, there were certain laws about what you could publish because of the sexual content, the obscene material in that. And what Grove Press did was not only to introduce these avant-garde authors, radical authors, experimental authors to American readers, in doing so they changed the laws and what was allowable to be published. And so I think that is as much of their, the history of their impact, how they changed what was possible. And you mentioned during our uh, tour how they would uh, solicit uh, supportive letters and blurbs from, quote, bona fide literary 
experts and practitioners with the intent of using these letters of support in in court in, in case they were required. Grove regularly, um, as most publishers do, uh, sent out letters to readers in advance of the publication of a book asking for a blurb uh, that expressed their support, interest, their thoughts on, on this book. And what you'll find is not all Grove authors liked all other <laughs> Grove authors and titles. Mm. So we were looking at little postcard sent from Lawrence Ferlinghetti back to Barney Rossett asking him of his opinion of Burroughs' Naked Lunch. And Ferlinghetti says, well, Naked Lunch is evil lunch. <laughs> I don't know whether you take that as a, a positive or a negative, but you get some interesting... Uh, responses. Henry and Miller didn't like Naked Lunch. Apparently, he thought it was had merit or yes, it was a seriousness. He couldn't stick with it. But I guess again, the, the as far as the legal concern, the idea would be to have these books acknowledged as artistically significant, so that that would defend their presence in in right. the public domain. Right. The, diff- the dividing line between something that was just obscene and something that was allowable to be sold in bookstores and sent through the mail was something that had literary or social merit. Yeah. Who gets yeah. to decide what that is? Yeah. Norman Mailer, maybe. He was <laughs> someone who, who was solicited for his opinion. Okay, so we've got drama both on the page and off the page. Mm-hmm. What's the next sort of category then? The Black Power Movement and post-colonialism, because that's an aspect of Grove I don't think many people realize. So would that tie in with civil rights? Yes, Barney Rossett and the other other people at Grove Press invested in civil rights, in the sit-ins, in what was going on in America at this period, but also black radicalism, militant black radicalism. Malcolm X, they published the autobiography of Malcolm X. And that was seen as very risky at the time. Malcolm X had been contracted from Doubleday to publish his autobiography. And he writes in the book, I'll be dead before this is published. And in fact, sadly, he was. After he was killed, Doubleday backed off. It seemed to be too risky for them to publish this book. And Barney Rossett snatched it up and and published it. So that was kind of an anchor for us for this section of the exhibit. But we Mm -hmm. also wanted to include um, black radical thinkers such as Julius Lester and then also canonical figures like Franz Fanon. We couldn't include Aimé Césaire, but that's another author who Grove introduced to American readers, the first publisher of A Season in the Congo. So there are letters in the archive from Grove Press employees to Martin Luther King Jr. and also gives you a window on to the situation in the United States. There are, through the publicity department, lists of reviewers for black books and black book bookstores. So the segregation and how that intersects with the publishing industry and the the literary and how marketplace. archaic that seems now. Absolutely. Yeah. But that is part of the context in which these books were published and why they were radical to publish at that time. Mm-hmm. And they seem so important, but not radical maybe to us now. And mm-hmm. so we wanted to bring out that context which showed how important it was that they were published and published in 1965, 1968, mm-hmm. these times. And, and speaking of radical, there's, there's also this revolutionary 
focus as well, and you've got a full case. Uh, bright, bright pink. Bright pink, that's right. <laughs> With a picture of you in front of it. The, the cover of the revolution. We knew that Grove had this important role in civil rights and with the uh, evolution of, of that movement. But when you think of the 1960s, you also have, you know, the student uprisings. You have so many other things going Vietnam. on. The, the Vietnam mm -hmm. uh, anti-war movement, the Yippies, the Democratic National Convention. Mm -hmm. So Grove, Grove was involved in all of that. And not only were they involved in the 60s, but their involvement in revolutions around the world continued up until the 80s. So mm -hmm. there are things with the Zapatistas, with freedom fighters. I mean, there, there are different movements that they, that they were also invested in. So that's what that case is about. One of the things we looked at was the cover of Evergreen Review with the mm -hmm. portrait of Che Guevara. One of the editors at Grove Press went to Bolivia to get fragments from Che Guevara's diary, which they published, which Grove published, and Bernie Russett commissioned Paul Davis to paint that now iconic portrait of Guevara that was on the cover of Evergreen Review. So, Speaking of artists and the book as object, there's really one key dust jacket designer that, uh, that Russet went to. His name was Roy Coleman, and he really seemed to give Grove books that look that you you see that they have a certain palette, they have a certain bright, a bright. Face. A, it looks of that era. You can't look at those books and not think, ooh, early mid sixties. <laughs> I mean, they're they're abstract using type and you know a, a very modern sans serif type um, with an abstract form, a circle or uh, a series of shapes that are not an illustration of the contents on a one-to-one -one level. They are more about, to me, a mood, something that captures what Grove was doing in terms of being experimental, in terms of not being... Um, Almost like LSD. They do have a psychedelic feel, yeah. don't they? But they also yeah. have like an art brute, like a, not naive, but... Yeah. Raw, jagged and red, yeah. And raw, you know, yeah. like paint, like they. And that's the thing when you think about this period in book design, right? Mm. Roy Coleman, and we have these in the collection. The mock-ups for the covers. I mean, this is this is someone who probably worked at a desk with an exacto knife and probably had some ink and a pen. And this is not Illustrator, Adobe InDesign. No. But was he doing something that was different? that was startlingly new, or was he just reflecting what was going on? Well, maybe a little bit of both. I mean, I think that you can look at New Directions, and you can see those those covers, and there seems to be a, a relationship there. Alvin Lustig, mostly. I mean, that's what sticks with me. And even looking at the clothing designs, looking at what was going on in the art world at this period, mm. I mean, they're not pop. They're definitely no. not pop. But mm. if you look at the transition out from abstract expressionism, I think that they do make sense within that larger visual culture. Who do you think influenced him, if anyone, or anything, or any... If, if there's nothing that comes to mind, then maybe he's just kind of capturing the, the zeitgeist, you know, who knows? Yeah, I don't... It or, 
I, I don't know who influenced him. The thing that comes to mind, and, you know, Barney Rossett did not design these covers. Roy Coleman did. Mm. But I know that Barney Rossett was very interested in jazz. And that doesn't seem too far afield to me. But, Improvisation. Yeah, and I think of Saul Bass. Mm-hmm. You know, he did, did these sort of intros to movies in those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did more that. than just movies. He did posters, movie yeah. posters and things. I still want to deal with sex. Okay. But... <laughs> Before we do that, the highbrow. Just let's get to collecting. The, the collector. Mm-hmm. Is it prohibitively expensive to get these 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 books? No, that's why it's great. Okay. <laughs> these are mass market books, basically. Right. Okay. They came out in hardcover, they but came mostly out in, paperback. They come out first in hardback, and then there would be a paperback edition. But mm. there are certain series that Grove published, like. Some of the drama, I think. But definitely the, the film books. Yeah. There are certain series that Grove did. They have a Zebra series. They have a Victorian Library series. They have the Evergreen Black Cat series. Those are paperback only. But Coleman wasn't involved in all of those, was he? His covers are, tra- are on, often the covers match. So the hardback first edition will have a dust jacket. And that image on the dust jacket will become the cover on the paperback edition. Most so, of the time. So as opposed to collecting, you know, like you want to kind of focus. So mm-hmm. Coleman would be a good focus mm-hmm. for a collector. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And there is no, at this period, I'm in, I'm in conversation with his daughter, and um, we've been talking about a bibliography of Coleman's jacket designs, and that no such thing exists yet. So, so hey, get so, on board early. Yeah, there's a, there's a frontier there to... To explore, I think they're beautiful covers. They're they're striking. They're really they really are. They're <coughs> excuse me. Any other designer that comes to mind, or he's the big one? Uh, there is another person, Paul. I hope I'm not getting his last name wrong. Deardoff, Deardoff, who was a designer there as well. But I. I'm only just learning about this person, so okay. I there's a name. <laughs> okay, okay, and and typically the name would appear on the back uh, on the back cover. Of the yes, on the back cover of the paperbacks, and I'm trying to think if they're yes on the jacket on the back. That's where I recall saying it. Okay, right. Coleman with a K. Yeah, how do you spell it? K U L H M A N. Let's get back to highbrow literature then. Sure, Grove may be known for the smut, and they may be known for being part of the counterculture, but they also published poetry and fiction of a very high quality. So, Kensaburo Oe. Interesting how there was a real focus. (laughs) Yeah, real focus on uh, uh, foreign uh, writers. Well, if you think of the two main editors at Grove Press, you have Richard Seaver, who was an American, but who spent a lot of time in Paris and France. So he was the sort of French... um, French connection. French connection. And then Fred Jordan, who was German, I think. Mm -hmm. But he did the... Fred Jordan was in charge of the German language books. But there were other people in there, Harry Braverman. Grove is known for bringing the European avant-garde to America, but also you think of Latin America, yeah. so Octavio Paz, Borges, oh, Borges, 
Castro, <laughs> Bolivia, and then Kenzo Burr, oh, is Japan. Yeah. And Pearl S. Buck is China. So, so a lot of, a lot of rabble rousers <laughs> from all around the world. All over. So. They didn't have any Icelandic authors that I know of. <laughs> so no wonder the CIA were interested in it. Yeah. yeah right. One of the things I would add for the book collector is that while these books are not expensive, right, you can find them at yard sales and estate sales or library book sales. If you can find a first edition of Borges, uh, with one of those great, you know, pink and black and orange covers. You know, it's not going to be a very expensive book, probably. But it's a really interesting book, because this is the first time these works would have been published in the United States. It's a cachet of a first edition, except it's, it's in first edition in English. So, yeah, this was the way that that, that writer was introduced to the English-speaking world. Mm-hmm. And some, a lot of these authors, I think you, you pointed out, between New Directions and Grove. I mean, that's a very interesting thing to compare because Octavio Paz published with both. You know, mm. I think Borges did as well. Okay, what about sex? Um, well, Grove is well known for publishing some uh, sexy books. Not only, you know, the Victorian raunchy novels, or the heard them referred to as spank novels. <laughs> you know what? When I was a teenager, I read... Um, uh, I just was so turned on by it, too. It was, what was it? It was called like, something like The Unnamed Gentleman or something oh, like yeah, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was a yeah, thick My book. Secret Life, all of these. Something yeah. like that. It was, yeah, and it was all about oh. him running around with chambermaids. And oh, yeah. So there's a, there's a great documentary out called Obscene on... Barney Rossett in the history of Grove Press, and they give a little story, uh, tell the story of how Barney acquired this library and a Victorian literature. I don't quite remember, but I think there were some a bookstore or book collectors, or someone had this library. But mm-hmm. of course, it's public domain; you can print it yeah. because it is Victorian. So he acquired this library, and in the um, publication files here in the archive, you can see that basically they photocopied or mimeographed mm-hmm. the, the book and had it typeset from the from the published book. But not only did they publish this Victorian stuff, they also uh, did Story of O, Barbarella. Um, so there's a lot of really fun things there and also highbrow materials like the Marquis de Sade and big time you know, pop psychology bestsellers like Burns, the games people play. So they were interested in not only the lofty and political and aesthetic things, but also the bodily <laughs> issues. Mm-hmm. So. And that's how you separate it, right? From the mind and the body. <laughs> and I love the cover of the story of O, too. Oh, that's great. In the design of their books, you can see that certain books have graphic type covers, and some have these beautiful improvisational graphic abstract covers. And then there are others, perhaps those that have the more scandalous content (laughs) within, that have a beautiful, pure, white, simple cover with just the title in black type. Story of O has that kind of cover. Uh, Original. You can see in these different series of books, like I was mentioning, The Black Cat or The Zebra, that they have a style there, whether they're paperback or um, hardback, the photographic covers of later in the late 70s or 80s. You know, they're very funny, and I enjoy them. How long is the exhibition going on here in Syracuse? It is up until June 
June mid, 22nd, mid June. Mid June 2013. Yes. Well, thanks so much for the tour and talking so eloquently about this really uh, impressive, revolutionary publishing house. I'm happy to be on your show, so thank you. I've been speaking with Lucy Mulroney, who is curator of rare books and manuscripts at the Special Collections Research Center, Syracuse University Library. Thanks again. Thank you.